Hello everyone, I'm Paris Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership with Tom Fox, hosted by Richard Lummis. What makes a great leader? Is it genetic or can you learn leadership skills? Join Tom Fox and Richard Lummis in this podcast, where they consider leadership from a wide variety of perspectives, academic, behavioral science, history, popular culture, the movies, and much more. You'll learn about specific tactics and strategies that you can bring to your own leadership toolkit. 12 O'Clock High is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. In this episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership, Richard Lummis and I take a look at focused leadership based upon a Harvard Business Review article by Dan Godwin. I think you will find it very useful going forward. Hello, this is Richard Lummis, and I'm here again with Tom Fox for another episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast about leadership. In these discussions, we draw what we hope are interesting examples from our own experiences, history, business, literature, and politics to examine what constitutes good leadership practice and extract lessons we can use to improve our own leadership skills. Welcome back, Tom. Thank you, Richard. Today, we're going to discuss an article from the December 2013 Harvard Business Review by Daniel Goleman titled The Focused Leader. Goldman's a psychologist who lectures frequently to professional groups, business audiences, and colleges. He originally studied ancient Indian theories of psychology and researched meditation during the 70s. And after that, he became a journalist. And in the mid-80s, he started working as a science journalist, reporting on the brain and behavioral sciences for the New York Times. His 1995 book, Emotional Intelligence, was on the New York Times bestseller list for a year and a half, And the Harvard Business Review called Emotional Intelligence, which discounts IQ as the sole measure of one's abilities, a revolutionary paradigm-shattering idea, and chose Goldman's article, What Makes a Leader, as one of 10 must-read articles from its pages. Apart from his books on emotional intelligence, he's written books on topics including self-deception, creativity, transparency, meditation, social and emotional learning, eco-literacy, and the ecological crisis. It's certainly an interesting background, and his interest in the ancient Indian schools of psychology and meditation informed some of his work in this article. Tom, what do you want to talk to us about um, with his concept of focused leadership? Well, uh, I thought, uh, and and you set that up much better than I could have, Richard, uh, because many of the things he talks about here 30, 40, 50 years ago, we would have said, well, that's just, you know, Hinduism or... Uh, yogiism from uh, Islam or, or perhaps even Buddhism. And now they're right in the mainstream of uh, American business thought, not political thought, not social thought. Uh, and it starts with focusing on yourself. Um, he does go on to talk about focusing on others and focusing on the wider world. And we'll get into those in a little bit, but focusing on yourself is self-awareness. And um, we talked a little bit about this, I think, in our last podcast, we talked about how leaders uh, can use intuition. But here uh, he goes into, Goldman, I thought, went into some pretty good detailed explanation of what do you mean when we say listen to your inner voice? It gives a little bit of uh, neuropsychology, neuropsychology about how the brain processes information. But it's it's much more than that, and it's much more practical than that. And I think I even posed a question uh, in a prior podcast or even our last podcast about 
can intuition be taught? Well, Goldman shows us that there's a number of factors that you can and should listen to in, in he calls sensory awareness. Um, it's picking up the cues, cues in the room. It's preparing uh, yourself to understand what those cues mean. It's listening to uh, not only the numbers and the data that you're getting, but it's how do you analyze that data. This is not Big Blue playing Gary Kasparov. This is Gary Kasparov playing, playing Big Blue. He's trying to use a lot of his own self-awareness uh, in a way that uh, up, up until the last time defeated the machine. Now, Big Blue did eventually defeat Gary Kasparov, but I don't think it takes away from the power of zeroing in on your inter, inner, not inter, inner perceptions, what your gut is telling you. Because if you can ask, why is it telling me that? Why is the hair on the back of my neck standing up? Why is this risk scenario, although we've gamed it out, we've mapped it out, uh, it's still, uh, I'm struggling with it. And um, if I could maybe even use a kind of a current example, um, you're a CEO of a major corporation, you get a malware demand, we we are going to release uh, your consumer products or consumer service company, we're going to release 2 million customers' personal identifiable data. Do you pay us? Well, the law is pretty clear. You cannot pay. You, know, you need to report that to the FBI. You, you may need to report it to government uh, reporting agencies such as OFAC, such as the SEC. On the other hand, if you don't pay and 2 million customers' personal identifiable data gets released, uh, what's going to be your reputational damage? What's going to be your own company's liability for that information getting out? And you may make the decision to pay. And that decision may not be based on what the law and what the information is yet, you may believe it's the right decision. So I found that uh, section uh, really helpful. Uh, Self-control is what he called cognitive control. What he really means is willpower. And uh, this is also something I think we talked about in our prior podcast. We did not call it willpower, particularly in the context of the Vernon Jordan discussion. Uh, But it is um, focusing on an issue uh, and seeing that issue through. Um, whether that is um, being a type A individual, uh, whether it's doing your own job, but it's not getting sidetracked um, down rabbit holes and keeping your eye on the ball. And that's certainly a, a great characteristic for a leader. Tell us a bit overboard, I think, on the importance of breathing exercises and meditation and so forth. But I think it is an important point that you need to be aware of your emotional state when you're evaluating some of these situations you're talking about. If you're angry, if you're irritated, um, it, it can increase your level of cognitive bias in a number of ways. Um, and his point, I think, is that he would use breathing or meditation just as a way to step back and observe what his emotional state was and then try to think about how that was affecting his decision-making process. And I, th- I think that's a that's a great idea for all of us. It's really hard to do under the pressure of, of time um, to be able to step back and do that. And he doesn't doesn't really address how to do that, but perhaps with practice it would become easier. Um, the second part of his uh, is uh, his triad is a focus on others, which he. Um, divides into three parts of empathy, the the first being cognitive empathy, 
um, which is the ability to understand another's perspective. And it requires thinking about the feelings of others rather than experiencing them yourselves. And he says that inquisitive people naturally get this more easily than others because they're interested in how others think and interested in what they're feeling. And that, that is a, that's an attitude you can cultivate. Secondly, he talks about emotional empathy, which is the ability to feel what somebody else feels. And this is actually automatic. Uh, the very older parts of our brain, the amygdala, the hypothalamus, hippocampus, and uh, orbifrontal cortex um, are all involved in that. And you literally can feel another person's pain if you witness it because your brainwave patterns actually synchronize. Um, this can become a problem because it can, uh, it can be a block to actually thinking because those ancient parts are creating an emotional response that um, is overriding rational thought. Uh, thirdly, he discusses what he calls empathic concern, which is to sense what others need or want from you. And this is really double-edged because it involves you have to weigh what they want or desire versus your own cost and how much you value their well-being. Um, it's critical to moral judgment. And again, this is an area where if you're distracted by, say, emails or the flood of pointless information we're all just inundated with these days, the less you can focus on and cultivate these subtler forms of, of empathy. Um, and then there's the, the wider world, huh? So uh, this was interesting as well. Uh, in many places, he re reiterates or builds upon what he talked about a little bit earlier. But uh, he starts off with this focus on strategy. And what I found really interesting here, Richard, was that uh, he says that any business school course on strategy will give you its two main elements. Either keep doing what you're doing or do something else. And, uh, uh, you know, he gets paid thousands of dollars to write stuff like this. So, um, but what he points out is that uh, doing what you're doing is obviously the easiest. It's easiest because you have the systems in place, but it's also the easiest for your brain. And when you do something different and you try to explore or exploit new options, uh, that actually has a, a change in your brain. And this is part of the insight I thought he had. And it really made me realize, you know, that that's right. And uh, many people uh, have difficulty with change. And it may be that it's a, a neurological or, or biological component. Nevertheless, he said that you have to make a conscious or what he calls a deliberate cognitive effort to disengage from the routine and move to uh, something um, a little more uh, uh, exploration notice. Second is innovation, and he calls it the wellsprings of innovation, and this is certainly uh, prevalent now. And what I have found in, uh, in a shameless plug for my Compliance and Coronavirus podcast, also on the Compliance Podcast Network, one of my observations has been uh, in 2020 is the speed at which change has occurred. Uh, I called it exponential change, exponential speed of change. But I had one uh, podcast guest say, we've had five years of change in the last six months. And that really was one of the best phrases I'd heard. And you have to innovate. And innovation's not new. It didn't start in 2020. It's been around for a long time. But the speed at which you have to make changes now, whether it's 
sending employees to work from home or returning employees to the office um, now uh, is going to uh, continue to put new risks in front of you in a way that have to be analyzed, have to be measured, and have to be managed. So the wellspring of innovation, I think, is going to, going to become, um, or another great phrase I heard was, we've gone from disaster recovery to business continuity to now this is the new business as usual. Not the new normal. This is just business now. We're not recovering from a disaster. We're This is standard. We're all going to have to deal with. So uh, as we move towards a much more dynamic, fast-paced change in every profession, in every corporate discipline, I think the wellspring of innovation. And finally, uh, the last one, I when I first read this, I found it really uh, an odd title, which is, quote, the dubious gift of system awareness, end quote. Um, I, I thought I was a big believer in system awareness. And after reading this, um, I, I believe, still believe in system awareness, but I define it as process. And my wife is a process engineer, and she's beaten that into me. Well, I'm, I'm now a process aficionado and uh, evangelist. So uh, system awareness, but what the system awareness tells you is that uh, if the system is too complex, it, it can be information o- overload. And, and if I could uh, speak to one of the other areas I, I work in is uh, anti-bribery, anti-corruption. And there was a one case that has always struck me because the company was concerned that there was bribery and corruption going on in China. So they sent the internal audit to, um, to do an audit. Internal audit came back and said, we don't understand how they're doing business. And my first thought when I read that in the settlement documents was, if you don't understand how a subsidiary is doing business, you need to end that subsidiary. There's absolutely no excuse for that. Whether it's too complex, whether it's too opaque, whatever the reason is, uh, there's absolutely no reason that a corporate office, corporate home office should not understand how a subsidiary is doing business. But it may, may have been in charity to the Chinese operators. It was a complex system. And that internal audit couldn't do it. But the point remains, if internal audit can't figure out how you're doing business because your business system is so complex, it's too complex. So uh, those were sort of uh, uh, the three points about the outward world. Richard, what were your kind of final thoughts on putting all this together? Well, I'm looking back at my notes. I skipped over one of one of his points, which had some interesting research. It was on building relationships. And I think this goes is addressed a little bit by your your Chinese example because social sensitivity is related to cognitive empathy and that the people who are good at one tend to be good at the other. And you need to pay very close attention to social contexts, especially in cross-cultural situations. And this is not necessarily just the overseas, foreign country type things. It can be regional or class differences. And people map social networks in groups and they create a hierarchy a middle hierarchy of importance or relevance um, to their situation. But research also suggests that as people rise in power, their ability to perceive and maintain personal connections suffers a sort of, he calls it a psychic attrition, especially towards those lower in status, um, which is very dangerous for an executive because it basically blocks you from input below a certain level in your hierarchy. Um, that you just ignore it. And it, it's a built-in mechanism that you need to be aware of. But um, 
know, I think this this the social sensitivity aspect of empathy here um, is is especially important in in a cultural context that you were talking about. Um, and tying it all together, I think um, you know the the uh, Herbert Simon put it the best that uh, a wealth of information creates a poverty of attention and. I think this is something we're all suffering from today. Um, we've got lots and lots of information. Most of it's extraneous. Some of it's simply wrong. Um, and you have to be able to sift through that and focus on what's important uh, to you and your business. And I guess, Richard, from the leadership perspective, it drove home the me to me. Uh, and once again, I agree with, with your conclusions. But it drove home the me need for a leader, from my perspective, to be able to synthesize what is the important information and what truly is extraneous? Even if you have uh, direct reports or people reporting to you indirectly who are very good, very smart, and are putting together uh, uh, very good information, if the information is extraneous, it's not going to help you make the decision. And so that's why I really believe that you need to have a core set of values that you can fall back on. You need to have a process by which you synthesize the information. And then you uh, have to take feedback or uh, you have to be willing to listen. And you have to listen after the uh, you've made your decision and you've implemented so that uh, you can continuously improve going forward. He does mention uh, sort of in a side context that one way to improve that attention is to adopt what they teach doctors to do, which is to create an almost emotional distance. He calls it a view from the ceiling and you need to sort of, almost step back and step back emotionally and it involves the awareness of your emotional state um, that how that's influencing what you're feeling about the information you're taking in and to try and distance that and put yourself back onto a rational uh, framework. Um, all of this is very easy to write an article about and very difficult to do in practice, I think, but uh, that's part of the fun. <laughs> Great way to end it, Richard. For now, this is Richard Lummis and Tom Fox with 12 O'Clock High. We hope you will join us next time. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you enjoyed this episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership. Also, check out the uh, article that the podcast is uh, uh, based upon in the show notes. Please join us again for our next episode where uh, Richard Lummis and I will take another look at leadership. 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership, is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>